The scripture reading today is taken from John 15, 5 to 14. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no other than this, that someone may lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let me introduce myself to those of you that haven't uh, met me yet or haven't had a chance to meet you. My name is Brant. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church. And we are beginning a new series this morning, uh, a series all about the church. And as we come to the word of God and to our our preached word every morning, uh, the most important thing for us to do is to seek the Lord's help. So I'm going to ask that you would pray with me together as we begin to look at the word of God. Father, we come to you and we ask for your help. Lord, we we are so thankful that we can come with confidence before your throne of grace to find mercy, to find help. And right now we come to ask for those things, that we would see wonderful things in your word, but that we would see more of what it means to, to be Christians in your church. Lord, that we would be built up in the love of Christ that you have poured out for us. Lord, that we would have faith that we would know your love and be encouraged to obey you and to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. Father, we ask all these things uh, with confidence and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So like I said, this morning we're in our first sermon in our new series, We Are the Church. And if you're wondering why on earth we would spend four whole weeks talking about the church versus maybe Jesus, or something else in scripture, uh, let me try to give you a bit of a a rationale of why we're doing this series as we begin. Well, just like the the culture of Corinth was doing this really interesting thing in Corinth in the series that we were looking at before this one began for the last several months in the book of Corinthians, just like the culture of Corinth was stealthily and deviously infiltrating the church in Corinth, I think the same thing is happening today too in our Western world where the culture of Vancouver is infiltrating our lives in ways that we don't actually really expect or maybe that are surprising to us that we're not even aware of, that we're largely unaware of the ways that we bring our culture with us to church. It's kind of the water that we swim in. Or if you're thinking about David Foster Wallace this morning, which you're probably not doing, I'm going to help you to do. Uh, We're kind of like one of the parables that he told about this the situation where these two fish were swimming in the water one day and an older fish swam past them and said, hey boys, how's the, morning? How's the water this morning? And uh, they kind of swim and go on their way and then the one fish turns to the other fish and says, 
what the heck is water? I didn't say heck, that's a pastor version of it. Uh, but what the heck is water? This is the way that we live, I think, in our, in our world, unaware so often of the culture that is the water in which we swim. Or you can think about another illustration about the way we bring our culture to church, and it would be this one. Imagine that I moved to Jakarta because I've loved and admired uh, the Indonesian families here at Christ City Church so much that I wanted to become more like them. And imagine I moved to Indonesia, but I still spoke English. I still ate at McDonald's. I assume there's McDonald's in Jakarta. Maybe there's not. Uh, and I hung out with my fellow Canadian expat friends with all my spare time, just regaling one another with all of our stories of how Indonesian we were becoming. Well, how Indonesian would we really be? How Indonesian would we really be? And similarly, the question for us is how deeply Christian will we be if the culture we live in, rather than the authority of the word of God, shapes our lives as Christians in this church? So Christ said, the reason for this series is this. There is a better country to belong to than Canada. There's a better culture to be formed by than the culture of a late Western society. There is a greater kingdom to be part of as Jesus' children, his followers, the citizens of the kingdoms that he came to inaugurate. But for us to lay hold of, of the riches that are in store for us and what God has to offer us in his word, then we need to have a bit of a church boot camp. We need to have our minds transformed and renewed by what the word of God says that even this thing that we're doing on Sunday mornings and throughout the week even is. We need to live by Romans 12 verse 2 which says, Do not be conformed to this world. Don't just let the water shape your life. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So today is day one of church boot camp at Christ City. I don't know if that's a favorable metaphor to use, but it's the one that we're running with. And we're going to look at this morning uh, our first topic, our first study, which is this. Who is the church? And notice right away, even in the way that we've titled this sermon today, notice something surprising. The question isn't, what is the church? The question is, who is the church? I think already that might be at odds with how our culture thinks about things. Because as we swim along as little fish in our waters, we might think of the church primarily as a building or an organization or a uh, some kind of an institution that has a tax write-off status with our government and we can give to charitably. Or maybe we think of it just as a social club or a group of people that we like to get along with once in a while. But that's not quite right. Because the church is fundamentally a people. It's a people. But what sort of people is the church? We could ask questions like this. Are, are you a part of the church of Jesus? Are you a member of his church simply by attending once in a while on Sunday mornings? Are you a, a member or part of the body of Christ because you've given to something and you've put financial contributions towards something? Are you part of the body of Christ because you sing songs really loudly and have a good voice? What is it that makes us part of Jesus' church? Who is 
the church? That's what we're going to be answering. That's the question we're going to be answering this morning as we look at John chapter 15. And what we're going to see are three things that John shows us, that Jesus shows us, and that John records for us. We're going to see that the church is made up of people like this. People who abide in Jesus and bear fruit. People who abide in Jesus' love and obey him. People who love one another. So I want you to look at our first point this morning with me. Those who abide in Jesus and bear fruit. And look at John chapter 15 verses 4 to 5 as we begin. Jesus says this, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As we begin to look at this passage, we just need to know a little bit about what's happening and, and what the text is that we're looking at, what's going on behind the scenes. And we realize, we need to know that in John chapter 15, Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room of a house in Jerusalem. And these are the last hours, last moments that Jesus has together with his disciples before he goes to be crucified. And though it's true that the Greek word for church, ekklesia, it's not actually in this passage. That's true. Even though the Greek word for church isn't in this passage, it doesn't mean that this isn't a passage about the church because this is where it all began. So the Greek word that we translate church means the ones who've been called out. And here, the first 12 disciples that Jesus had called out of darkness, had called into the culture of his kingdom and out of the culture of the world, had called into his life. Here they are learning what it means to truly be Jesus' disciples. But we know these words aren't just for those original 12 disciples. These are words that are for all of those who Jesus has called out of darkness and into light, out of death and into his life throughout all history. In fact, that's why the apostle John recorded them for us many years after this took place, so that the church would have these words and be formed as disciples of Jesus, as his church together, according to the word of Jesus. And in this passage, Jesus begins by calling himself the true vine. And he commands his followers to abide in him and to bear fruit. You know, for those that would have first heard these words from Jesus and, and this text of scripture read to them in, in one of the, the ancient churches, that word vine would have brought to mind other parts of the Bible. It's very rich imagery that is rooted in the first half of the Bible in the Old Testament. And there in the Old Testament, the people of God, the people of Israel, they're often called a vine. A vine that God has planted. A vine that God planted and, and desired to have good fruit from. But whenever they're called a vine, it seems, uh, in places or passages like Isaiah 5, what's notable about their vineliness is their distinct lack of fruitfulness. They do not abide in God's love and mercy. They do not take the mercy and love they've received from God and then share it with others. They're actually greedy and wicked. And their lives, because of their greediness and their selfishness, they end up producing more death in this world, more oppression, 
more awful suffering for other people because of the way that they are not living in a rich relationship with God. But here, in this upper room, when Jesus says, I am the true vine and brings all of those Old Testament passages to mind, he says something remarkable. I am the true vine. Where everyone else failed to find life and flourishing and fruitfulness in the history of the Bible and the history of this world, Jesus says, I don't. There's something different about me. Those who abide in me will be fruitful like I am. And I think it's important to ask yourself, well, then what is fruitfulness anyway? Are we supposed to bear grapes in our lives? We're supposed to have different kinds of fruit that we produce? What does that look like? Well, the fruit that Jesus is talking about, the fruit that we see that God desired in Scripture was the fruit that comes from living in this genuine relationship with God that results in hearts that are transformed to joyfully love God in return that receive the love of God for us and love others, that have our lives so shaped by this love that we've received and we're showing to others that we're willing to sacrifice for the good of one another. Talking about a life that has been filled up with the Holy Spirit of God so that we bear the fruit of the Spirit in all of our relationships, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So I think the first question we need to ask then as we come to this text and we're looking at what does it mean to be somebody who is in Jesus' church is this. Are you and I, are we as a church, hungry for a meaningful and fruitful life? Are we hungry for a meaningful and a fruitful life? And if we are, Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And he goes on and he says the opposite of that in verse 6. That if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's surprising, isn't it? According to Jesus, not according to our Western society, according to Jesus, who is part of Jesus' church? Those who abide in Jesus, who bear good fruit, and therefore prove by their lives that they are Jesus' disciples. And I realized this morning that that could be very sobering and even scary for us as a church. And if we're honest and we're looking at our lives and we see what's really going on in our lives, we might be wondering, hey, does that mean that I'm not a follower of Jesus? Like, what does this mean? You know, I'm I'm a little bit more discouraged than encouraged by your words this morning, Brant. (laughs) I'm a little convicted by my lack of abiding in fruitfulness. Well, if that's you this morning, there's something that you need to know. There is a simple and beautiful solution to all of the sinfulness and the failings that we have as human beings in this world. So the first step is to turn to Jesus in faith. The truth is that God hasn't saved 
anyone here in this church because he was so impressed by the way that they managed to, by their own power and exertion, produce fruit on their own vines. It's not why he saved anybody. No, God saves his people for one reason, because they see their sin and they reach out in simple faith to Jesus to receive the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus alone offers. So this morning, if you're wondering where you're at, abide in Jesus. Come to him and confess your sin. Say, Jesus, my life is a mess and I need your mercy. My life is a wreck. And I'm seeing this morning that that I'm not really producing much in my life by way of fruitfulness. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. Confess your trust in him. You can say something like this. You can say, Jesus, I see who I really am, but I believe that your sacrifice on the cross is enough to pay for all of my sin. That your sacrifice on the cross is enough to do everything that's needed for me to be brought into a relationship of life and of flourishing with God. So I'm going to trust in that instead of trusting in my lack of fruitfulness. I think this morning's an opportunity to be encouraged and to look at Jesus' own words in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Where Jesus says there, For God so loved the world. For God so loved us in this room who put our faith in Jesus to forgive us. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, Christ City, there's only one thing that causes us to abide in Jesus and to produce fruit in Jesus. It's by abiding in Jesus, by turning to him, confessing our sin and trusting in his grace and his mercy. That's the only thing that will do it. Confessing our sin before him honestly and transparently, not hiding it, not hiding it from one another and trusting that Jesus has come to love and to save people like you and I. And to fill us with his Holy Spirit uniting us to God. Like Jesus said in John 14, 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Those who abide richly in relationship with God. As you think about this and you think about what it means to abide in Jesus and bear fruit, I I want you to look around in this room a little bit. I want you to just kind of casually glance at the person sitting next to you around this room at who's all here this morning. I want you to look at the ways that God is at work presently changing our lives in this church as we turn to Jesus to receive his mercy and to abide in him. See, when I look at this room, the people who are here, I see story after story after story of God producing fruitfulness in the lives that have run to him for the forgiveness and the grace that only he offers. When I look at this room, I have the privilege of seeing broken marriages that have been restored. I see brothers and sisters in Christ who have been freed from addictions or are in the process of being freed from addiction as their lives are being changed by the grace of Jesus. I look at people who once were deeply selfish, like I so often am, and who are being changed little by little as they turn to Jesus in repentance and in faith to be changed by his spirit and by his love to become selfless 
and sacrificial people who give their lives for the benefit of others. I have the privilege of seeing people who are being filled with virtue and with wisdom who previously had none of those things. This is a story of what God is doing by his grace, uniting us to Jesus by faith and changing our lives. He's doing it right now. We've been joined to this true vine by faith in Jesus. We run to see him and to receive his mercy. So who is the church? Well, first of all, it's those who abide in Jesus, trusting in him by faith, receiving his mercy and forgiveness and being changed by those things to produce fruit. But is there more that we can say about what it means to bear fruit? Well, there is more that we can say about what it means to bear fruit. And and John actually goes on and provides another additional layer explaining what he's been talking talking about in John 15 verses 9 to 11. So look at that passage now in our second point, that love and obedience must also characterize the church. Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So notice first what he says in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I'm wondering this morning, has there ever been a time in your life when you've been really lonely. I'm wondering if there's been a time in your life when you've looked around and you've seen relationships that were happening around you and you've been jealous of them. You wanted to be part of what was happening in these beautiful places. Maybe a friendship that you admired, maybe a relationship that you desired for yourself. So the first thing we see when we look at this passage is that because of God's worst, because of God's mercy for us in Christ Jesus, we've been welcomed into the most exclusive, the most gloriously loving, the most self-giving relationship of love that exists in all of the universe. Jesus says, as a father has loved me, so I have loved you. He's bringing us into the relationship and the exclusivity of the love that the father and the son share with one another. You know, in another place in John chapter 17, verse 23, Jesus would even say it a different way. He would say that the Father loves us in the same way that the Father has loved Jesus. See, Christ City, by faith, we're being brought into the incredible love of God that he exclusively shares as Father and Son and Holy Spirit in relationship. And you've been brought into that love for one reason, because you've turned to Jesus in faith, trusting in his mercy and in his forgiveness. We've already seen this text that it's only abiding in Jesus that produces fruitfulness. But another way of talking about this is what John wants to show us here. That only abiding in Jesus' love can produce obedience in our lives. Abiding in Jesus' love is what produces obedience in our lives. Let me show you what I mean as we look at Jesus' example and read verses 9 to 11 again. As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, Jesus loves the Father. The Father loves Jesus. 
And Jesus' perfect relationship of love with the Father is proved by Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father. So while he was on earth, this is what we see. The words of Jesus in verse 10, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, so you are to abide in my love and do the same with me. You see, while Jesus was fully on earth, when he was on man, uh, when he was on earth, fully God and fully man, his obedience wasn't something that was easy, even though he was fully God and fully man. Because Jesus was tempted just like we are. He was tempted that there might be an easier and a more fruitful way to live his life than a life of obedience to the Father. He was tempted to get out of the hard thing that God the Father had called him to. In fact, Jesus didn't face less temptation than we do, but he actually faced more temptation than we do. It was on his way to the cross, before he was betrayed, Jesus was alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was praying to the Father. He knew that the only way to save a fruitless humanity that produces death and destruction by the way that we live our lives was to die in our place and for our sins, to reconnect us in relationship with God so that we be filled with his own life, his own love and his own spirit so we become fruitful. And he knew that he knew that, that salvation that we needed would require his death in our place that he'd have to become sin for us, that he'd be cursed by God for sin in our place, that he would take the sorrow and the shame and the guilt and punishment that we deserved on his shoulders. And so on that long night in Gethsemane, as Jesus cried out to the Father, he cried out not because obedience was easy, but because obedience was really hard. Look at Luke chapter 22, verses 41 to 44. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Don't miss that. Jesus wrestled to obey the Father. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. But Jesus knew the Father's love for him. And so he obeyed him. I think it's really, really important to see this in this passage. Jesus didn't go to the cross in obedience to the Father because he was afraid of the Father's judgment. Jesus didn't go to the cross in obedience to the Father because he just tried really, really, really hard to do a difficult thing. Jesus went to the cross in obedience because he knew and abided in the riches of the Father's love for him. And Jesus proved his love to the Father and that he was abiding in the love that the Father had for him by a life of obedience to the Father. And it must be the same in our lives. Look at verses 9 to 10 again. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You know, Christ City, today, I think it's true that many people will tell you that it's possible to be a Christian, that it's possible to be in the church of Jesus, it's possible to love Jesus, and not to obey him. 
Many people will say that, hey, it's okay. We don't have to follow the word of God that, that he's given to us, showing our love and our obedience to him. No, I, I just love God, but I don't do those things and I don't think that you should either. But friends, if we're not willing to obey Jesus, if we're not willing to obey his words for us in the, war, or the whole of the Bible, I think that shows that we don't love him and that we don't actually abide in him, what this passage calls us to. So the question for us then is this, do you want to grow in obedience to Jesus this morning? Do you want to grow in what it means to, to live a fruitful life abiding in Christ? then I think we need to look to the life of Jesus. How did he grow in his obedience to the Father when he lived his life on earth? We can see some things in his example. You know what Jesus did in his life on earth? Jesus regularly gathered with the people of God. You see, story after story when Jesus is traveling and he goes to the synagogues and he's with the people of God gathering together for prayer and for worship as the people of God. We see in Jesus' own life of obedience on earth that as he grew in his love of the Father, grew to know the Father's love, that he actually had to stop the course and the pace of his life and take time to go and be alone with the Father. I think that's an incredible thing. I, I think we often think that we'll grow in our lives of obedience and of love for God and knowing his love for us when we never do anything like that. We never take time out of our busy schedule to go and to be alone with God in prayer and to cultivate that relationship with him. Jesus did that. So how foolish are we if we think that we can grow in his love and obedience and if we don't do the same? But I think there's something else we see in Jesus' life because we see in his life that, that he studied the word of God. He loved the Father. He showed his love by, by learning all that the Father communicated to him through the word of God. He knew it forwards and backwards. I think for us too, if we're going to grow in cultivating our own hearts, where we know the love of God for us and abide in that love and increase in obedience to him, we need to know the word of God that he's given to us. So I want to encourage you, if you're not reading the Bible regularly, read the Bible. Study the Bible. Avail yourself of the opportunities at Christ City Church to learn more of the Bible, to learn better how to read it, to learn together with others more about what the word of God teaches us. So in our culture, it might be true that when we see a word like obedience, we think it's a bad thing. In our culture, I think it's true that anything that sounds like it might restrict my personal desires and feelings, that it must be a negative thing. But Jesus doesn't have that for us. Something bad. He has something good for us by obedience. He says it's not a burden that he wants to place on our shoulders, but a joy that he wants us to experience. Look at verse 11. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He doesn't want less life for you. He wants fullness of life for you. He says his commandments have the purpose, fullness of joy. A fullness of joy that's experienced in this cascading relationship of love from the Father to Jesus and from Jesus now to us. Look at our third point now in verses 11 to 14 and the way that the church is those who love one another. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment 
that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. This morning, I, I got up and as I was working on this message, I noticed I had an email come into my inbox and it was from a, uh, a member of, of this church who's now out in Uganda. And he was talking about the way at one point in the letter that he'd visited the Nile's headwaters. It's really interesting that the Nile headwaters in Uganda are 6,400 kilometers away from the Delta in Egypt, the longest river in the world. And so you can talk, and I was thinking about this, thinking about the way he's at the headwaters, but how that water then makes its way all the way down to the Mediterranean Ocean. Think in the same way when we look at verses 11 to 14, in a similar way, we can follow the headwaters of love as it cascades down from the Father to the Son, and the Son to us, and from us in our lives, shared out to others in the church and in our neighborhoods. So Father has loved Jesus, verse 9, so he has loved us, verse 9, so we must love others, in verse 12. So who's the church? The church of Jesus are those who live fruitful lives in a world of death and sorrow because we abide in Jesus. We abide in the love of Jesus, this love that he first shared with the Father, and we obey him according to the scriptures, and we obey him in particularly by sharing that love that we've received from God outwards with others. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther, he, uh, he wrote in the 1500s, he lived in the 1500s, and he once captured what we're talking about here, this cascading fountain of love that we receive and share with others. And he said it this way. He said, it is a duty of every Christian to be Christ to his neighbor. Isn't that powerful? It is a duty of every Christian to be Christ to his neighbor. And I see your faces right now and I'm with you. At first, it sounds absurd. Like that can't quite be right. You know, I don't know if that's biblical, Brent. That seems a little nuts. You know, isn't that blasphemous somehow, Brent? Um, but look carefully again at what Jesus says. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command, particularly in loving one another as I have loved you. Before my grandma died, she told me this story um, of the way when she was a little girl, I think she was six years old, and she, she grew up in the Netherlands, and she lived in a house that was occupied by Nazi soldiers because there was a, a key railway crossing right on their farm uh, over a canal. And so what would happen is that as she grew up with these Nazis around her, periodically the Allied uh, air forces would come and they'd try to knock out that bridge. And what would happen then is the bombs would come and occasionally they'd fall and, and they'd land on the farm. And one time they killed her brother. And another time she tells a story of the way where where the bomb was falling and the, you know, the sirens were going off and, and she remembers being at the top of their, uh, the stairs going down into the cellar and this Nazi soldier that they've been living with and, and, and had developed a relationship with, uh, he grabbed my grandma and he pushed her down the cellar stairs. And she said she remembers falling flat on her back and looking up and hearing the bomb going off and seeing blue sky above the house. And it's a powerful story because there's something so powerful about a sacrificial love. A sacrificial love that's willing to save someone's life, to die in their place. 
That's why Jesus says that, that this love that he has that's so profound for us is a love that lays down his life for his friends. And then as we receive that love from Jesus, he's commanded us. He's not asked us and he's not suggested to us in the church. He's commanded us to do the same to one another. First, I think for the people here, again, look around, take a good note of who you're called to love first. And then from this place outward into the streets of Vancouver to our own neighbors. It's a profound thing that we're talking about this morning about what it means to be this church that is Jesus' church. And in summary, who is the church? Those who abide in Jesus and bear fruit. Those who abide in his love and obey him. Those who live lives of sacrificial love for one another. I think this is a profound and countercultural teaching. It's not something that you're going to find out there in the world around us. And I, for that reason, I think it's really important that we spend a few minutes just digging down into the practical implications of this for us. Like, what does this mean then for us? Like, how, how should we live differently as a church of Jesus if these things are true or should be true for us? Well, first, first implication is this. I have three to think about. First is that as Jesus' church, I think that we must kill any selfish individualism that still hangs out in our hearts. It's got to be put to death. We got to put it to death. Because there's no place in this church for us to think merely about ourselves. Because Jesus didn't live that way and he's commanded us not to live that way either. So the church, it's not like Amazon or a, whatever online shopping experience you might uh, know well, where you spend all your time researching to find the best product for you. And then when you're not satisfied with it, when it comes, you then just, that's okay, I print off the return label and I get rid of it. And the church isn't to be like that. But I think that if we're honest, and it's not just you this morning, like this is about me, I, I'm here with you. I think if we're honest, we do the same thing. We treat the church like a shopping experience for our own benefit. But the church is a people that we've been called to sacrificially love. A people that we've been called to love in their mess, in their sin, in all those frustrating things about them that we don't like, that irritate us about one another. We're called to be here together as a church in love for one another. And if we're to live rich, fruitful lives as Jesus' church, we must take to heart his words in Mark 10, 43 to 45. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as a son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, a good way for you to prepare your heart for worship on a Sunday morning would be to come here thinking, my job this morning is to serve the people around me. And then to take that with you throughout the week. My job then is not just Sunday morning. It's to live as a church 24-7 and to serve these people. To love these people for the glory of God. See, Christ City, loving and serving like Jesus, it's not the fastest way to grow an attractive church in Vancouver. There are faster ways to do 
the, 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 growth of, the growth of the church and to make it really big and flashy and impressive. This is slow, hard work. And it means that you'll very often labor at it and not see the harvest of what you're doing. But I guarantee you that you don't yet realize how fruitful living this way can actually be in your life. You see, it's, it's historically undeniable that abiding in Jesus and serving like Jesus has served us has led to the transformation of the world. And I know that's a big statement. I also know that there is infinite historical research to prove this to you if you don't think it's true. I'll, I'd love to show it to you. See, receiving the love of Jesus, it was as Christians who came to Jesus as sinners before a holy God and who've been given this unbelievable life and love and redemption and mercy and grace and they were blown away by it. Blown away by the love of God that they'd received. It was only then that they, receiving that love, then started to love like Jesus, showing that love outwards to others. And because they received that love and shared it, they bore fruit. For 2,000 years, we've seen them build hospitals and overturn slavery, build orphanages, give dignity to the lowest caste and lift the most oppressed in every society where the gospel of Jesus has gone forth. It's gone forward and stopped parents murdering their unwanted daughters in societies that don't value women and their children in societies that don't want kids. It's welcomed the orphan and the widow and those with nothing and cared for them. It's built universities and given hundreds of people groups throughout this world their own written languages before they had nothing so that those people could be educated, so that they could rise from their low state to actually have an equality of status in their own society so they could live as those who are made in the image of God to take dominion for his glory in this world. All because of the love of God that they abided in through Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus' words in verses five to six, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And heed the warning. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So I think the first implication is we've got to let that individualism die as we live lives of sacrifice for one another. Uh, second, we need to kill our idealism. It's got to die. We got to kill our judgmentalism that we bring to church with us. Again, I'm not talking at you. I'm talking to us. I'm here with you. I have to repent of this every day. So the church is a people who abide in Jesus, who are utterly dependent on his love and his grace for us. That means this isn't a perfect church. And how could it be? It has you and I in it. Right? It can't be a perfect church because we're here. Because we're here. And if you stick around here long enough, this means that what's going to happen is that the person sitting next to you, or maybe me or someone in this room, they're going to disappoint you. They're going to sin against you, and they're going to do things that you don't like. It's going to happen. It's how the church is as a family. It's going to be messy. But Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And he said, love your enemies. 
And he said through his apostle Paul, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. He even said through Paul, bear with one another in love. That means put up with one another's idiosyncrasies because you love one another and you can let it go. Stop bringing that idealism and that judgmentalism with you to church. To be a fruitful church, we got to let it die. We got to be willing to be gracious with one another, to truly love one another from the heart. Third, To be the church of Jesus, we need to live according to Jesus' list of priorities for our lives, not our own. We got to start living by Jesus' list of priorities. You see, when we make big decisions in life, I don't think we do this. Probably when we don't, probably when we make the small decisions, we don't either, but let's focus on the big ones. The big decisions like where we live, what we will study, what career we'll pursue, who will marry, where will work? I think what comes first is usually the question of what will make me happy? What will fulfill my personal feelings and desires? And we live our life mostly that way. And what we do is we just fit Jesus into the margins everywhere else where we can kind of place him. That's not the way the church lives and makes decisions. We need to grow to become people who ask questions like this. How will this decision lead me to abide more deeply in Jesus' love? How will this decision lead me to abide more deeply in Jesus' love together with others in his church? How will this decision lead to greater faithfulness and fruitfulness for God's glory in my life? How will this decision lead to others being built up and blessed in the body of Christ around me? What's best for Jesus' glory and the good of his church needs to be the question that we ask ourselves. Not what's most comfortable and pleasurable for me. You see, our culture asks, how can I be happy and fulfilled by following my desires and feelings? It's the water we swim in. But Jesus says, find happiness in a flourishing, fruitful life, not by living for yourself, but in knowing my love and loving others as I have loved you. Jesus says, find happiness in a flourishing, fruitful life, not in living for yourself, but in knowing my love and loving others as I have loved you. Only then will we become a church, a people who are staggeringly fruitful in this world. I want to close just with one verse, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would help us. Lord, that you would first help us that as you lead us to to a place of conviction, you'd also lead us to a place of repentance. We would churn from the ways that aren't pleasing from you and we'd actually put our faith in Jesus again to know that we are loved so deeply simply by trusting in him. Lord, help us to be honest about the messiness of our lives and our sinfulness so we can receive more and more of God's grace with joy and thanksgiving so that we'd abide in your love, delighting that you love sinners like us and make us your beloved children so we'd be changed by that love to go out and to serve others for your glory. You do this for your great name's sake in Vancouver. Amen.